May 24, 1738 was a memorable day for John Wesley, not only for John Wesley, but for the entire world. John Wesley was an Anglican clergyman, Church of England priest. He was in a state of despair. He could not think it possible that he could ever get to heaven and be saved, even though he was a minister. He'd just come back from preaching in, Af in uh, America, where he went and preached in Georgia, and he felt that his entire ministry had been a failure. He went to church, and uh, he was somewhat encouraged, because when he got to church, a text was given out that said, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And he thought, could this be so? He was at St. Paul's Church in the afternoon, and the anthem was sung from one of the Psalms, Psalm 130, that says, Out of the deep have I called unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. O let thine ears consider well the voice of my complaint. If thou, Lord, will be extreme to mark what is done amiss, O Lord, who may abide it? But there is mercy with thee. Therefore thou shalt be feared. O Israel, trust in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. And with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his sins. That evening he went very unwillingly to our little church service conducted by a group of laymen at Aldersgate Lane. It was cold. And the layman was reading Luther's preface to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, Wesley wrote, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That was a new day for John Wesley. Indeed, it was a new day for the world. Because John Wesley started a great reformation in England, he was not, of course, one of the reformers like Martin Luther. He came hundreds of years after. But he started a mighty reformation in England that swept across the Atlantic and came to America and that raised up the great Methodist church. And before he died, at least... 500,000 souls had come to a knowledge of salvation from this man who has been described as a brand plucked from the burning. And so he said, as he discovered after years of frantic searching, my heart was strangely warmed. I would say to you today, and for those watching on television, this can be your experience today. Today, before this meeting is over, you can feel and sense that your heart is strangely warmed. You see, my friend, John Wesley was no different to most of us, except that he was a clergyman, one of the most perilous of all societies. It has been said that there are three professions that have assail the human race, lawyers and doctors and clergymen. And from each of these three professions, God has raised up the very best and the very, the strongest and the most zealous and the most godly. But those three professions lumped together have assailed the human race. And John Wesley was a clergyman with everything that implies, he was a Church of England priest. He had been a missionary to America. But he felt lost and condemned and he was no blessing to the world until he felt his heart strangely warmed. 
I want you to know, my friend, that there is only one true gospel. And that day, by the grace of God, Wesley discovered the one true gospel. Jesus taught the true gospel. Paul preached the true gospel and Luther rediscovered the true gospel. I wonder today whether you understand and believe the true gospel. Would you please take your Bible today and come with me to the book of Galatians chapter 1 and verses 6 to 9, my dearly beloved friends. Galatians chapter 1 and verses 6 down to 9. Galatians 1 verses 6 to 9, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into, conf into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody preach is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. And then verse 11 and 12, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation by Jesus Christ. This gospel is not merely taught, though today I will attempt to teach the gospel. But this gospel is not merely taught. It is revealed supernaturally by divine revelation. That is why every person needs to read the Bible. That is why every person needs to bring the Bible to church. And the, and the thing that is a little scary about this true gospel is this, that if you believe the false gospel, you will very easily think you believe the true gospel. And therefore, there will be no desire in your heart to turn to the text because you will believe that you are safe and secure. But the Bible teaches that there is a true gospel and the Bible teaches that there is a counterfeit gospel. And the true gospel comes by revelation of the Holy Spirit. You see, my friend, the gospel you believe the gospel you trust your soul to will determine your life and your death. The gospel you believe will determine how you live and most importantly, how you die. When I was the pastor of the Warunga Church in Sydney, Australia, I had some folks who came to me on occasion and they said, we work in a large Anglican Church of England hospice here on the North Shore of Sydney. They said, because they'd heard me preach on the true gospel, they said, we have an experience to tell you that I think would bless you so you could bless the people. We see many, many, many people die. And there are some people who die with peace. And some people who die without any fear. But there are members of two great religions that I shall not mention here. But two great religions in the world, they die fearing the flame. They, these people said to me, these medical workers, we try to comfort them. But they go out into darkness screaming because they know they are not good enough. But said the young doctor to me, there are people who belong to some other churches and when they die, it is simply going to sleep at night. There is no fear of the flame. I want to say to you today, the gospel you believe in will determine how you live and how you die and where you will spend eternity. The gospel we believe in determines how people live and how they treat each other. Did you know that Rwanda in Africa is a Christian nation? 
Some of those countries are not Christian, but Rwanda has been uh, made into a Christian nation by missionaries from the West. And when that terrible crime of genocide took place, it was Christian against Christian. In Rwanda, Christians, pastors, deacons and elders and church mem members dipped their hands in the, in the blood of a million people just a little while ago. Why? Because they had a lot of religion and they had the false gospel. And then we have the continuing conflict in the Balkans, the Serbs against the Croatians. And of course, the Serbs are Christians, they pray, they are Orthodox Christians, and the Croatians are Roman Catholics. And they have carried out for years during the Second World War and in past months and even today, they have carried out unspeakable tortures and atrocities. Millions have been put to death, Christian against Christian. Why? Is it because they do not have religion? Yes, they do. But they do not have the true gospel. They have a gospel. The word Jesuit, that Jesus, and I think, Beverly, did you talk about, mention Jesuits? No, you were talking about the Reformation. But at that time, the Jesuits were doing all they could to stamp out the word of God. And the word Jesuit is not a bad word. I would not mind if it didn't have such awful connotations, to be called a Jesuit because a Jesuit is a follower of Jesus. Jesuit, one who follows Jesus. And the Jesuits were the most zealous, the most conscientious, and the most devout. The Jesuits were trained by Ignatius of Loyola, a Spaniard, and they were trained to imitate the life of Christ and to spend not just a few moments every day, but eight or ten hours every day meditating upon the passion of our Lord. They invented the Spanish pulley. The Spanish pulley was an instrument whereby a person, Roman Catholic or Protestant, was hung by his arms twisted around his back and this would go on for hours until the bones were completely pulled from the body. This was done, as they said, for the glory of God. Not only the glory of God, said the Jesuits, but for the greater glory. Then they used the rack and the iron virgin, which was a replica of what they thought the Virgin Mary looked like, and the thumb screws and the burnings of millions and millions of people. And as they did it, they prayed for their souls, and they crossed them, crossed, made the sign of the cross, and they did it because they said they loved Jesus. It is estimated that millions died in awful pain at the hands of Jesus, the followers of Jesus. Perhaps the most professional religionists in the history of the world were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were harsh, hard, loveless, but not lawless, loveless, legalistic, very sincere, very religious, and very devout. And the Pharisees dipped their hands in the blood of Christ, was it because they did not have religion? Yes, they had plenty of religion. Did they have a gospel? Yes, they had a gospel. They believed that they were on the way to glory, but they had the false gospel that is also described more fully in the book of Galatians. And Paul actually here refers to the Pharisees. Come over here to Galatians chapter 4, and I have so much to tell you, and this is so important. Please turn to Galatians chapter 4. And verse 22 and onwards, my beloved friends. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 22 and onwards, please. Galatians 4 verse 22. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. 
because she is in slavery with her children. And if you come down to verse 29, it says, At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. Now, the Bible says that there are two covenants. And one covenant is a covenant whereby people are made liberated and the children of God. And the Bible says there is another covenant and it comes from Mount Sinai in Arabia and it corresponds to the children of Israel in the days of Paul and he's referring there to the religion of the Pharisees. And he says that religion makes people slaves and he says what happens is that the sons of the slave persecute the sons of the free. The main cause for religious persecution is because people do not follow the true gospel of Christ, but they follow the gospel of man. Ah, my friend, the Pharisees did not receive any revelation from heaven. Paul was a Pharisee, and when he received a revelation from heaven, the Orthodox Church members hounded him and hounded him and hounded him. They were persecutors. Now, I want you to notice how Satan has counterfeited all of God's holy truths. Would you please take this colored sheet of paper, and I want you to notice this, if you don't mind, the true and the counterfeit. Please take these out. And if you want to have a copy, you can write to me, John Carter, care of the Carter Report, Post Office Box 1900,000, Oaks, California, 91358, and we'll send this to you with our compliments. On the left-hand side, you have true Protestantism, and on the right-hand side, we have Roman Catholicism. Now, listen very carefully. I'm not here today to criticize Roman Catholicism. Let me make this very plain. I'm not talking against Roman Catholicism or Roman Catholics, and I'm not talking for Protestants or against Protestants. I am simply giving you the facts of history and the facts of God's Word. Notice true Protestantism, point number one. The Bible alone is the Christian's authority for salvation. Roman Catholicism, the Bible is interpreted by the Roman Catholic Church plus tradition. True Protestantism, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Number two, salvation by grace alone through faith plus the works of love wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit. I'll come back to that. Point number three, Protestantism, repentance, the counterfeit penance. Point number four, the truth, the one sacrifice of Calvary, once for all, and the counterfeit, the many sacrifices of the Mass. Point five, the Lord's Supper, the substitute, transubstantiation. Point six, Christ our only high priest. Number six, the counterfeit, the Pope and many priests. Number seven, the Sabbath of the Commandments. And number seven, the Sabbath of the church or Sunday keeping. Number eight, the baptism of believers, that is the truth. The counterfeit is the baptism of infants. Number nine, baptism by immersion, that is the truth. And the counterfeit, baptism by sprinkling. Number ten, the new birth. And number ten, church membership. Number eleven, that the dead are asleep, that is the teaching of the Bible. And the counterfeit is that the dead are alive and also the immortality of the soul, I might add. Number 12, the resurrection of the dead. Number 12, the immortality of the soul. That's the counterfeit. Number 13, rewards at the second coming. Number 13, the counterfeit, rewards at death. Number 14, the intercession of Christ alone. Number 14, the counterfeit, the intercession of the saints. Number 15, the church built on Christ, the rock. Number 15, the counterfeit, the church built upon Peter. Number 16, the punishment and destruction of the wicked. That's the truth. The counterfeit, the eternal torturing of the wicked. 
Number 17, love. The counterfeit, fear. 18, persuasion. The counterfeit, persecution. Number 19, the priesthood of all believers. Number 19, the counterfeit, the church hierarchy. Number 20, the truth, tolerance. And number 20, the counterfeit, intolerance. Notice, if you will, number 19, the priesthood of all believers. Listen very carefully to me. And I could take a whole sermon on this, a sermon on the essence of the mark of the beast. In the true church of God, everybody is equal. The Bible talks about the laity, and that means the people of God. And the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers is plainly taught in Scripture. That means that every person here today can go into the very presence of Almighty God at any time through Jesus Christ. Now the great counterfeit is a man-made system of leadership, the hierarchy that is in the place of God and that passes the word down to the people. Why do I urge each of you, why do I urge you, Bob, to bring your Bible to church? Doctor, why do I urge you to bring your Bible to church? Why do I do this, Dan? Why do I ask you, bring, bring your Bible to church and to read the text and do not trust in me because I do not believe in hierarchies. I believe in the priesthood of all believers. I want to tell you what the very essence and core of Catholicism is, that the church must always be obeyed. And that when the priest speaks or the bishop or the popes or the cardinals, when they speak, that is the voice of God and should always be obeyed. There are some Protestants who would deny that, but they say, if my church speaks and if a committee speaks, that is the voice of God because my church speaks with the authority of Almighty God. That doctrine is the essence and the heart of Antichrist. I believe in properly constituted church authority. And I believe that church authority should be obeyed when it is in harmony with the Word of God and reason. But if a church committee goes against Scripture or reason, it ought to be disobeyed. That is the teaching of the Word of God. And I've had some friends in my own church say, well, if my church tells me to do something, whether it is right or wrong, I will do it. It is because that church is the highest authority on earth. That person, my friend, is a candidate, listen, for the mark of the beast. Because the mark of the beast is the surrender of the soul to church authority instead of the surrender of the soul to the authority of God speaking through his word. And so I do not believe in hierarchies. I believe in the priesthood of all believers. This is a part of the truth that I preach. Now listen very carefully. The Antichrist has a masterpiece of deception. I want you to come to point two here, and here it is. Point number two, true Protestantism. Point number two, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Roman Catholicism, the counterfeit, salvation by grace alone through faith plus the works of love wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not to make you feel embarrassed. It is to awaken your pure minds to the truth of God's Word. So help you, God. I take my stand today over here. I take my stand with Jesus. I take my stand with all the apostles and the prophets and specifically St. Paul. I take my stand with Martin Luther I believe in by grace alone, by faith alone. And this statement over here is a direct quotation from the Roman Catholic Church, the Council of Trent. 
If you mark this one today in our little test, it is not that you might be embarrassed, but that you might realize you've been on the wrong track. Because if you have marked this one, you are not over here, my friend, on the side of Christ. You're over here on the side of Antichrist because this is the official teaching of the Church of Rome and the Pope and the Council of Trent by grace alone, by faith, plus works of love wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you some things because, oh, my dear friend, you must understand this. This great doctrine of deception is believed by the Pope, by a billion Roman Catholics, by all the bishops and the cardinals, and by a vast number of Protestants, including a large number in my own denomination. It is not the truth of the Bible. Let me tell you about the Council of Trent. Every person here needs to have some church history. Oh, I tell you, my friend, let me write it up here. The Council of Trent. Dr. Graham Bradford said something to me the other day that sort of scared me. He said, you know, John, we are living not only in a post-Christian society, but we're living in a post-theological society where people have become so superficial, they know nothing about church history and they know nothing about the Word of God because their brains have been destroyed by television. This is what he said to me. And I want you to have your faith upon the Word of God and that you will be intelligently informed. Let me tell you about the Council of Trent. Martin Luther nailed up the 99 Theses in 1517, and a number of years after this, as the Church of Rome was shaken to her core, she called under the leadership of the Spanish Jesuits the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent debated, not for a few days, but it went on and off for years. How shall we answer these accursed Protestants? And some of the bishops said, we've got to get back to the Bible and the Bible alone. But one of the great cardinals got up and he said, we can't get back to the Bible and the Bible alone because, holy fathers, we changed the Sabbath. They said, we changed the Sabbath. There's no authority for Sunday in the Bible. And the Council of Trent said, we can knock the, we can just give the Protestants a knockout punch because they follow our false Sabbath. And they didn't get it from the Bible, they got it from us. But they went on further and they dealt with the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue at Trent wasn't the Sabbath, wasn't the state of the dead, it was the state of the gospel. Now let me tell you what the Council of Trent taught and what the Pope teaches today and all Roman Catholic priests officially believe and believe in their hearts. Listen, they believe this, that a person is converted by the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God comes to the the sinner who has been aroused by conscience and the Spirit of God starts to work on his heart. Does this sound good to you? Yes, it does. This is a part of the gospel. This is the work of grace. Never, never, never say that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that people are not saved by grace. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that we are saved by grace alone. Don't go and say things that they don't believe. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that we are saved by grace alone. And they believe that we are saved by faith because of the death of Jesus for our sins. They believe in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So here is the sinner. He's been awakened by the Spirit of God. And he puts his faith in Christ. And then God starts a work of grace in the heart. And this work is the work of justification. 
And justification is the process whereby the Holy Spirit of God transforms the sinner into the likeness of Christ. And if you believe that, you believe the false gospel. Can I tell you something? As a pastor, I get scared and get shook up on occasions because I know folks who come along and hear the true gospel and they'll go to a church the next Sabbath and they'll hear the counterfeit and they can't tell the difference. It is because they are walking in darkness in an unsaved condition. The church of Rome says, by grace alone, by faith, plus the works of love wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit, do you believe that the Holy Spirit works in the heart? Yes, I believe that. Do I believe that this is the basis of my salvation? No, I don't believe that. I do not believe that justification is a long, drawn-out process. I believe, as we're going to see, it is instantaneous. And so here you have a devout Roman Catholic like the Pope like so many of the nuns and the bishops and your neighbors who are wonderful people, and so they believe that the Spirit of God is working on them. That is why Roman Catholic theology puts so much emphasis upon copying Christ. That is why that great book by Thomas Kempis, The Imitation of the Life of Christ, has been read by millions. I must copy Jesus. And after I've copied Jesus long enough, I am going to be righteous and God is going to take me home. But the most devout Roman Catholic, if he is honest, knows in his heart of hearts that he's not good enough. So when he dies, he knows he's not good enough. So Roman Catholic theologians invented a doctrine that is not taught in the Bible. It is the doctrine of purgatory. And purgatory is a part of the grace of God. It's not God being mean. It is God being gracious to purge the soul of all sin so the sinner, saved by grace, purged from sin, can come and stand in the sight of a holy God. That doctrine is believed by millions. If you believe it, you're never, never going to have peace and quite likely, you're never going to be saved. That doctrine leads to fear, people dying, fearing the flame. It leads to depression. How can I ever be good enough? I pray, I fast, I try, but I'm not good enough. And sometimes it leads to another sin equally as obnoxious, and that is Phariseeism and self-righteousness, where people suffer a sense of the delusion that they are righteous. And then they become Pharisees, and they're very stiff and starchy and harsh and critical. That's Phariseeism. And you may have met some of them, and you wonder why people leave the church. Let me talk about the true gospel, because if you understand the true gospel today, my soul will rest in peace. Come over here to Gal uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Going to leave the book of Galatians and come over now to Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, my dear friends. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9. Let me have your eyes you watching me? Some of you are going to say, the pastor today is splitting hairs. Don't you think that? Millions of people died at the stake to defend this. Millions died around the world, people in England and Germany and other places, and even in Spain there was a tiny, tiny awakening. The Reformation never got there. But millions of people around the world could have been released from the burning of the fire if they had surrendered this doctrine and said, yes, we believe in this. So you may say, there's no difference and the pastor is splitting hairs. That, my friend, I look you in the eye, is because you are biblically illiterate. 
and you don't understand the Word of God, and it's time for you today to walk out of the darkness and to walk into His marvelous light and to have your heart strangely warmed. I say this to you in compassion, and I say it to you in love, but I say it with all my soul. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. The Bible says, I'm saved by grace through faith and not by works, not by works of love wrought in my heart by the Holy Spirit. What is grace? The Bible teaches The grace is the sheer mercy of God. Why do I need grace? Do I need grace today? Why do I need grace? Because I am an undeserving sinner and I need the mercy of my Savior. Grace is the story that God loves me in spite of all of my imperfections. God is not cruel. He's not vindictive. He's not angry. He is not a persecuting God, and he doesn't torture sinners. I just love that old hymn that sometimes we sing, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. What a great message is the doctrine of the love of God, that God loves us even though we are sinners. And that is what we are. The Bible says I'm saved by grace, and the Bible says it's the only way I could ever be saved because we are sinners Past tense, we were sinners, and the Bible says we are sinners today. Present, continuous, and you say, I don't like to be told I'm a sinner. That is my friend, you're under this covenant, that's why. The proud human heart resents the piercing truth that none of us are good enough for salvation and we can only be saved by the merits of the Savior. Would you come over here to the greatest book in the Bible on this doctrine? Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 and onwards. When did you last hear a sermon on the book of Romans? My friend, it's the greatest book. It is the key of all of our sermons in this church. Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 and onwards, my beloved friends. This chapter, some have said, is the greatest chapter ever written on the, on the gospel. Romans 3 verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The Bible says you can never be saved by observing the law. You can never be saved by works of love wrought in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You know why? Who of us here today has enough works of love? After you have been in the Christian pathway for 20 years, 30 years, I've been a saved Christian, I believe, since I was 17 years of age, and that's a few years ago now. But my friend, I want you to know I cannot trust in works of love wrought in my heart by the Holy Spirit because there's never been enough of it. Never been enough of it. And I've got to trust in something more than the works of love wrought in my heart by the Holy Spirit. Read on. This is what the Bible says. You can't be saved by the law. Verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. 
This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says all have sinned. That's past tense. And the Bible takes it even further. The Bible says we fall short of the glory of God. You may be 85 years of age. You may have been a Christian for 70 years, but the Bible says you're not good enough. You're still falling short of the glory of God. I'm here to tell you today, my friend, that the only way that we can be saved is by grace because none of us have got, have got enough of the works of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for mine eyes have seen the Lord the Lord of hosts. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Alan White said, the closer we come to God, the more sinful we'll appear in our own eyes. Laodicea, the last church of which we are a part, is the church that basically believes this. Because Laodicea, calling herself the remnant church, says, I am a mighty church. And she says, I have need of nothing. I am rich and increased with goods. God says, you need to awaken and you need to anoint your eyes with eyesalf. Therefore, the church of the remnant in the last day seems to like that doctrine. Because she says... I have need of nothing. She says, I can keep the law of God, and therefore I am righteous. That, of course, is good counsel of trend theology. Luther made a statement that people who believe this don't understand. And lots of people believe this. I'm in the minority. But Luther said, because he understood the truth, Luther came out of this, but Luther said, a Christian is always a sinner, always a penitent, always right with God. And the person who believes this says, well, Luther must have been an antinomian. He was saying that he was out murdering, he was out stealing, he was out cheating. No, no, no. You need a lightning. You need some enlightening for any of you think that. Luther was saying that a Christian is never perfect. We all stumble. We all fall. We all make mistakes. We all sin. We fall short of the glory of God. You do it today. You do it today. There's no person here today who is a righteous person. None of us. None of us. We are all sinners, and Martin Luther said, always a sinner, always a penitent, always crying out to God, Lord, have mercy upon this sinner. One of our Sabbath school teachers some years back was teaching a group of our dear little children whom we were training to be good Council of Trent Church members, and she said, whom do you think is good enough to go to heaven? And one little boy said, my mummy, she's good enough. Teacher said, no, your mummy's. Well, I think the pastor's good enough. Certainly didn't know this one. And then the teacher taught those children, the pastor's not good enough. Your mummy's not good enough. No person is good enough to go to heaven because, you see, there's never been enough of this stuff. Never been enough love in the heart. Never enough, never enough. You've got to get over here and trust in grace alone, by faith alone, and trust not in your goodness, but in his goodness. You see, Jesus is sinless, and he is good enough. He's the one sinless person who ever lived. Some people have got their theology terribly twisted up, and they think that unless we develop where we're exactly the same as Jesus, we're not going to make it. Oh, my friend, you're standing over here. That's the teaching of the Council of Trent. 
Did you know perfectionism is the teaching of the Council of Trent? It is a doctrine that leads to despair. It leads to Pharisaism, and it leads to the deception where people think they are righteous and how difficult they are to get along with. But the Bible teaches that Jesus is sinless, and he is good enough, and he died for all of my sins. Would you notice this, Romans 3, verse 23, and onwards, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. What happened on the cross? What happened on the cross? On the cross, the grace of God was manifested in a sin offering, and Jesus, the one righteous, sinless man, took our load of guilt upon him, and he paid with his own blood the price of our sins. And when Jesus cried out and said, Father, it is finished, he was saying, I have won the battle. I am saved by grace alone, and I am saved by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church has got many deceptions, none worse, my friend, than the doctrine of transubstantiation. That is the doctrine of the Mass, whereby... The priest believes that through the doctrine of transubstantiation and the power that God has put in him, he changes the bread into the body of Christ and the wine into the blood of Christ. And every time a mass is said, it's another Calvary, another sacrifice, a million of them a day around the world. But the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, one sacrifice for all men, for all time, and you can read that in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. The Bible teaches that when Jesus died on the cross, he made a perfect and complete atonement for your sins and my sins. Listen, my friend, when I come to him and accept his grace alone, and I put my faith alone, my faith alone in him, he by his grace, by the merits of Christ, by his glorious grace, he declares that I am righteous. Justification is not a process Justification is instantaneous the moment I believe in Christ. Not a process. This is a process. But over here, my friend, it's the act of the judge when he stands in the when he stands up there before the universe and he says, This man I declare is righteous, not because he's good enough, but because my son is good enough. And if he dies now, he is going to go to heaven. You see? That's the gospel. Come over here to Romans. Let me read you some great texts. Romans 1, 16, 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24 and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 and verse 1, Therefore, there is no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, the gospel changes us. Only a faith based upon love and grace, only that faith can bring assurance, peace, love and forgiveness and obedience. It is interesting that John Wesley's little group that was instrumental in his conversion and his salvation later became antinomian. 
and said that the law is abolished. That, of course, was completely repudiated by John Wesley, who broke his ties with the people who led him to Christ. A person saved by grace will never speak ill of the law of God. I want to tell you today something. Listen to me. We need the true gospel in Rwanda. We need the true gospel in Northern Ireland. The Serbs need the true gospel. Mr. Milosevic needs the true gospel. The Croatians need the gospel. The Roman Catholics need the gospel. The Orthodox need the true gospel. Protestants need the true gospel. Baptists need the true gospel. Methodists need the true gospel. Adventists, and that is my denomination, and I would say perhaps need it more than most. We need the true gospel because so many are standing over here on the side of the Council of Trent, not willingly but ignorantly. And I want to tell you today, I need it more than any of you. And you need it too. This true gospel is the great reason for rejoicing. Tyndale described the book of Romans and these words many people cannot comprehend because of their darkness that has blinded their eyes. He said, the book of Romans, it's good, glad, and merry tidings that makes a man's heart to sing for joy at his feet to dance. And so many churches are so miserable and so sour, so formal and so powerless, and usually the people who are in the Officers of the church are the ones who are the most miserable because, my friend, they've never had their hearts strangely warmed. They've been chilled by this. You know the story in the book of Luke about the prodigal boy and he goes home and the father runs out to meet him and when the father gets him home, the father says, let's have a party and celebrate. That was something the Pharisee hated. Hated those words, hated that concept, because the Pharisee, my friend, stood over here, and there's no good news there. It's only the fear of the flame. But when a person gets over here on the side of grace alone and faith alone, will there be works of love wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit? Amen. Will there be forgiveness? Yes. Will there be beings? Why? 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 Out of gratitude. Sheer gratitude, sheer gratitude, gratitude. An attitude of gratitude is the essence of Christianity. And so in spite of trials and tribulations and kicks and persecutions, we are invited in the words of the Lord to the gospel feast. This gospel, the gospel of God, is joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let us receive her King. Hallelujah.